We are launching a brand new series today, and that is we're in part one of a 17-part series called Connecting with God. We do yearly themes here at Bridgeway, and 2020 is the year of connecting, right? Connecting. Uh, and what we're going to be focusing on the first half of the year is our connection with God specifically. That's vertical. But then the second half of the year, we're going to be focusing on our connection with each other, our horizontal relationships, because once again, we connect with Christ and the body of Christ. That's kind of how it works. Now, in order to kind of get into this, I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank there on your sheet. But I have a thought for you as we walk into that. And that is this. I believe that the proper demeanor of all believers is extraordinary confidence and extraordinary humility. I believe that they go together. I believe that every Christian should walk around proud of who God has made them, thankful of who God has made them, excited about who God has made you to be. I don't think that false humility of let me downgrade myself and let me degrade myself and talk about, oh, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, that does not honor God, right? He has done extraordinary things in you. Big thing is, it's not really about you, right? So as impressed as we can be about what God has done in us, we don't focus on ourselves. That's what humility means. It means we get our eyes on other people. We get our eyes on the Lord and we keep it there, right? But when it comes to how you feel walking through life, you should be able to hold your head up high. Why? You are a child of God. You are someone that has been rescued, someone that has been transformed. It says all things have become new. You didn't just turn over a new leaf, you turned over a new life. You know, I'll talk, know what I'm talking about, yeah? Right, so we're saying that we should be able to know the power of an indwelling Holy Spirit and walk as if it's so. So I'm going to read a list about the difference it makes when you know your identity in Jesus Christ. So as I go through this, let's see if you agree with me, all right? So let's start with the first one. Until we know grace... We will continue to perform religiously for God's love and approval, yeah? Yep. Until we know abundant love, we will be stingy with our love towards others, yeah? Until we know forgiveness, our enemies will hold power over our hearts. Until we know that we are children of God, we will continue to model ourselves after society. Until we are abundantly blessed and we know that, we will continue to struggle with generosity. Until we know our authority and power in Christ, we will still live in fear and live in reaction. And finally, until we know our kingdom purpose, we will continually chase after things that don't matter to give us meaning. Amen? Amen. The fill in the blank, therefore, on the page in front of you is this. Connection with God brings confidence. Connection with God brings confidence, meaning that we can walk through knowing fully who we are, who God is, and feel pretty awesome about that. Now, we're going to dive into the book of Ephesians. Now, I've taught the book of Ephesians at this church twice before, right? Now, the first one, I don't think a whole lot of you are here for the first one, right? Now, I've said that, and in every service, somebody got me wrong, right? So, in the first service, there's a whole group of them. Second service... It was my mom. <laughs> First time I taught the book of Ephesians was 1998. Anybody there in 1998? 
right? I should say here in 1998, right? Nope, all right, first service, okay, good. Now, the second time I taught it was in 2008 in the year of world impact, and that means that it has been 11 and a half years since I have taught the book of Ephesians. I'm gonna assume that when we go through this, you're not gonna go, oh, not again, right? You don't remember it. It was 11 and a half years ago, right? So we're gonna dive into it as if it is brand new. Now, as you know, I'm a big fan of context. You gotta know what the background is. You gotta know the history. So all you Bible nerds are about to geek out with me, yeah? We're gonna get into this stuff, why? Because I brought maps and pictures. Yeah, right? Maps and pictures. All right, so we need to zone in on this. Let's start with the fact that we are all terrible at geography. Let's start with a map. Well, could we throw up that first map on the screen? All right, this is what you should know is called the world. Uh, now, we're, what we're looking at is we're looking at the top of Africa, we're looking at Europe, we're looking at Asia, portions of Asia, right? Okay, so that's kind of the Middle East and Europe. All right, I want to zero in on the middle of that map. Let's go to the next slide if we can. This is Turkey and Greece. Turkey's on the right-hand side, Greece is on the left-hand side, and this area is very, very important in Scripture. You can pull that down. Here's why. I got a chance to go there in 2002 following the footsteps of St. Paul, right, on a study tour. It's fascinating, and I took a bunch of pictures, and they were all out of focus. So we're not using those. Uh, the whole digital camera thing was brand new, right, in 2002, so that didn't exactly work out super well for me. But it's very, very important. Did you know that 11 of Paul's 13 books in the New Testament address that area alone? 11 of 13, 85% of all the material that he wrote in Scripture that we know of addresses Turkey and Greece. So if you don't know too much about that area, I'm glad you came this morning, right? Because I'm going to give you a little bit of a fast tour so that we understand how important it is. For example, Paul was born in Turkey. We may know a little bit about Greece. Most of us don't know anything about Turkey, right? Mostly here's what we know about Greece. We want it as our screensaver right? Where you kind of have the, the Greek Isles and all that stuff. We think that's cool. Don't ever go into Turkey and call them the Greek Isles. That's a terrible idea. They call them the Turkish Isles, right? All right. So here's why it's so important. Not only was Paul born in, born in Turkey, but every time he mentions Asia, he actually is talking about Asia Minor. He's talking about Turkey. All seven churches of Revelation exist where? Turkey. Galatia, if you ever look at the book of Galatians, it's just an entire region in Turkey. Six of the 13 books that Paul wrote in the New Testament concern Turkey alone. Galatians, Ephesians, both letters to Timothy, Colossians, and Philemon. John the Revelator, who wrote the book of Revelations, tradition shows that he spent the majority of his life in Turkey and he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him and she lived there as well. So it's fascinating that we know very little about a country or a nation or a part of the world that so much of the New Testament took part in, yeah? So we're going to dive into that a little bit further. When I went there, it was one of my favorite places to go because you could see stuff like this. Let's throw up the next slide. Take a look at that. How awesome is that? That was built just after Paul's day in 195 AD. All of it had fallen down. They took all those original materials and put it right back up. When you walk through there, you can take that down. That is the facade of the Library of Celsus. 
At one time, it held 12,000 scrolls. It was one of the largest ancient libraries of its time. I find that kind of stuff beautiful. Let's go on to the next slide. Look at this one. This is the Temple of Hadrian. You can walk through and see stuff like that. Let's go to the next slide. This is just one of the roads that you walk down. One thing that I found was interesting in all these ancient uh, places you could go, I never saw any guards. I never saw anybody monitoring it. And I may or may not have seen another tourist knock over a pillar. <laughs> How awkward is that? All right, you can pull that down. The city of Ephesus was the greatest city in Asia Minor in Paul's time. It was the third largest but Strabo, the historian, said that in influence in the Roman Empire, it was second only to Rome. Now, whether or not that is true, it means Ephesus was a big deal. As a matter of fact, they had one of the seven wonders of the world there. So it was the temple of Artemis. They had this deity, this goddess, this pagan goddess that they worshipped, and they were really into her. She later was attached to the name of Diana. The temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis, was so extraordinary, it was marked out as one of the seven wonders of the entire ancient world. This is a fancy place. Why was it so big? Why was it so thriving? Because it was a seaport. You could go right up to the dock and it was there that you had a trade route. and You were connected to everybody else. It was multi-ethnic, multicultural. Even though it was Roman, it was heavily influenced by Greece. Well, why don't we go ahead and take a look at this next picture. See this? This is actually kind of a neat picture looking out on one of the roads that led out to the harbor. Paul would have walked in on that road as he came in with his ship. You can pull that down. You see... When I got a chance to walk that same road, I got a chance to go down there, I realized, wow, this is kind of a, a cool experience. And then I noticed something in the sidewalk. Now, the road there was either marble or it was stone, but a lot of it still exists. And I noticed something etched in about every few steps. I noticed something in there. So I looked down at it, and you know what it was? It was a footprint. A footprint had been etched in there. And I was like, what in the world is that all about? So I asked our guide. And our guide said, oh, those are footsteps that lead from the dock all the way up into the city. And I go, oh, where do they go? He goes, the brothel. <laughs> Permanent signage, right? I'm not saying anything about Navy men. All I'm saying <laughs> is that it led from the dock all the way up to the brothel permanently. That's crazy. All right, let's go ahead and look at the, the next one. Do you see this? This is a one of the largest theaters in the ancient world. It held 25,000 spectators. A more mini version of that was the Odeon. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is where they would hold plays, and later on they held gladiator, uh, gladiator games, right? Um, so we're going to find out a little bit more about that. All right, let's jump to the next one. See this right here? This is still being excavated today, right? If you look at that, it looks like you can see down into a mosaic on the floor. Can you see that? All right, you can go ahead and pull that down. This is where they discovered it looked like it was the upper side of the city where all the wealthy people lived. And as they're digging down into it, they're finding that all the original flooring is still there. So all the tiles, all the mosaics, they would find that some houses had whole pools inside their house. It was amazing and beautiful. So you can only look in there from a distance. You can't go in there because they're still uncovering all of this stuff 
even today. One more thing I wanted to show you there was, take a look at this. You know what this is? Anybody have an idea on what that is? That's a baptismal, all right? So if you look at it and you go, okay, so that little circle in the middle, how deep is that? Well, when I walked into it, it came up just above my knee. Now, let's just focus for a moment on me trying to get immersed in there, <laughs> right? Now, I, once again, I've shared with you already the awkwardness of me being in a bathtub. This is even worse. How in the world am I supposed to crawl under the water in that little tiny hole? You can take that down. If I'm trying to crawl under that hole, I got all kinds of limbs sticking out, right? Because doesn't baptism mean immerse? Doesn't it mean to go under the water? How am I supposed to get under the water there? Well, I wasn't. Why? Well, let me share something with you. Have you ever heard of the Didache or the Didache? This is a text that was found. It was on a scroll that was found by a priest back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. It was just sitting in there. He pulled it out and it said, the word of the apostles to the Gentiles. And he found out that it was a little writing about how to do church and it was dated 30 years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead to 70 years. In other words, while all the apostles were mostly still alive, somebody wrote down how they did church. How incredible that we have that document. And it gave us some insights as to baptism. It began to tell you how to do baptism. So they're assuming that the Gentiles didn't have a clue. So they wrote down some instructions and here's what they said. When you baptize, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, for example, at Bridgeway, when you get baptized, that's what we are whispering or speaking over you as we lower you down into the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do we do it that way? Because of documents like this, that they've been doing that for 2,000 years. Then it said, the best way to get baptized is in cold living water. You're like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean cold living water? Here's what they meant. Water that came in from one place and went out in another place. Living meant running water. So, for example, a river. It comes in and it goes by. Why is that better? Why does it need to be cold? It's coming in from the mountains and out the other way. Why is that better? Because of the symbolism, which is what? I went in with my sins and they were what? washed away. All right. They said, if you don't have cold living water, standing warm water is legit. You're allowed to have standing warm water. That's like a lake that doesn't have an outlet. That's a reservoir. So when you see that we have here baptismals where we lower people down into it, once again, they're going, no, 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 that's legit. It's not the best, but it's pretty good. And then they said this, if you don't have either, you pour it over their head. Now that baptismal makes sense because once that harbor silted up and you can't go there anymore, it was way too long of a walk. So how are you going to do baptisms? They did it by the pouring method. So they said you have them get poured over three times. Every time you say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You pour it over their head. So the hole doesn't have to be very deep. It just needs to catch the water that is pouring over their body. Now, I knew all of that, but once I got into the study for this sermon, I learned something I did not know. That the Didache actually said something that was unusual to me. It said, when you baptize... The person getting baptized should fast, and the person baptizing should fast. 
I thought that was interesting. I never knew that before. All right, let's keep moving forward. I got, uh, let's see here. Let's go to the next slide. Anybody know whose house this is? Take a look at the house. You can probably look at the mailbox and figure it out. Uh, that is Mary's house. Uh, it is believed that Mary lived there. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want to see inside, take a look at the next slide. This is what the inside looks like. Man, she's terrible at decorating, <laughs> right? Where in the world do you put the TV if you have an altar right there in the front, right? It doesn't make any sense. All right, you can pull that down. You say, did Mary really live there? Well, interestingly enough, we get the tradition, it got started in the fourth century, that's the 300s, meaning real soon afterwards, a couple generations after, they said, yep, John took Mary there. Why does John have Mary? Anybody remember that story? At the foot of the cross, yeah? At the foot of the cross stood some women. Jesus' mom was there, but there was one guy, that was John. On that cross, Jesus said, hey, John, can you take care of my mom for me? I'm going away. Why did he hand mom over to John? Now, we're speculating because he doesn't say why. But I think it is very clear once you realize every other apostle was martyred except John. He's the only one that lived, and he lived really long. Why? Because he was probably the youngest disciple. So Jesus was handing his mom, who was young, over to a young man to take care of her because she was going to live a really long time. How old was Mary when we believe that she got pregnant with Jesus? About 14 or 15 years old. So once again, she's only 15 years older than her son. If he dies at 33, she's still a very young woman. That means someone has to take care of her for the rest of their life. So it is believed that John and Mary moved from that Jerusalem area and they moved out to Ephesus set up homes there, and then John from there was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he ended up doing the book of Revelation. Some people believe that he got off the island, some people don't. All right, so that is it for uh, pictures and stories. All right, everybody appreciate those? Yeah, all right, good. Good, way more Bible nerds in this service than in the other ones. All right, so let's get into the facts. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul the Apostle, when? A.D. 60 to 63, same time as Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. Why is that important? Because if you're going through the New Testament and you go, wait, didn't I already read this? The answer is yes. The book of Colossians and, and Philippians, excuse me, Colossians and Ephesians are so similar that one-third of their content is the same, one-fourth is verbatim in Greek, the exact same. So if you go, man, I memorized this verse. I thought that was in Colossians. Is it in Ephesians? The answer is yes, it always is. All right, now let's go through a little bit more. Where did he write it from? Paul was in a Roman prison. Who did he write it to? Imagine you're on a game show. You got a buzzer in front of you and they said, all right, and you're going up against somebody else. And he said, who did Paul write the book of Ephesians to? You'd hit your buzzer and say what? The Ephesians, you'd begin correct. Why? The earliest manuscripts don't have the phrase in Ephesus. Isn't that interesting? As a matter of fact, some of the earliest ones call it Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. And you go, well, then how in the world did we get it called the Ephesians? Well, that's conjecture. But most scholars believe this. Paul was writing to the general region. There was three cities that were called sister cities. They were very close, both in geography 
and style. And that was Ephesus, Laodicea, which is the one where you hear the lukewarm thing in Revelation, and Hierapolis. Paul likely knew all three churches and wrote the letter to all three of them and didn't put a name on it. And you go, well, then how did Ephesus get attached to it? Most believe that they were the biggest church, so they got the mail and kept the mail and put their own name on it. All right? So, interestingly, that's why big churches are bad. No, that's not true. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. All right. What's the context? What, what, what is in this book? Three words. Theology, identity, and unity. Theology, identity, and unity. We're going to talk about theology. Who is God? We're going to talk about identity. Who are we? And we're going to talk about how we need to get along. That is unity. All right. Let's get this party started. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to cover a whopping two verses today. We've, I'm just going to read the two verses for context, and then we'll go back and I'll tell you what I see. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of us would read that in our morning devotions, and we just kind of blow past and go, oh, good intro. But I think in order to understand the rest of the book, you need to understand what he just said. So we begin with the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, was Paul his birth name? What was his first name? Saul. The fact that Saul became Paul is a critical piece to his story. We are not our past, but our past informs our present. Yes? The very idea that he grew up with a different name but now operates under Paul is intriguing. So let's talk about who he used to be. Saul, they believe, was born in A.D. 10. So in other words, he was the next wave. You had Jesus and his apostles, and then he started moving outward. Paul was that first next outward move. He was close in age but was a little bit younger. Now, it is believed that he grew up in Tarsus, and a lot of Tarsus we don't know about, but there's a couple things that are really important. First of all, he's a Jew. Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, and I mean Orthodox meaning traditional Jews, were very focused on training up their children. Religious training for Jews in the ancient world started at four years old. You started learning Bible at five years old, okay? He was trained up in a very Jewish family. As a matter of fact, later on in his life, he referred to himself as a Pharisee, which means he knew the law, he knew Scripture backward and forward, but he also lived it out to perfection. He was so focused on this, he was all in. So religiously, he was brilliant from study. But that's not the end of his story. You see, in Tarsus, they had a university that was so good it rivaled Athens. 
he studied there. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he studied under a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the brightest and sharpest men in the known world. So not only did Paul get religious training of the highest magnitude, he got secular training of the highest magnitude. When you start reading stuff like the book of Romans and you go, dang, somebody really smart wrote this. Yep, that's Paul. He's really intelligent. He's not just some guy off the street. He knows what he's talking about. Being born in Tarsus allowed him to be what? A Roman citizen from birth. That was very important. It opened doors for you. The other thing that's interesting is he was part of the family business. Anybody remember what the family business is? Tent making. He made goat hair tents. That's how he paid the bills. So he would travel around and everywhere he went, he would kind of set up a shop, put on a little apron, get his his handkerchief over his head and go to town, right? He would make stuff pay the bills, and do all ministry on the side. Now, initially, being an incredibly strong Jewish man, he heard about this new movement called the Way, found out that they were followers of Jesus Christ, was not cool with that, felt that Jesus Christ was blasphemous, so he wanted to shut them down. He then went into full persecution mode, putting Christians in prison, killing them when necessary, he was a Christian killer. Then one day on one of his travels, he was on the road to Damascus, and a bright light shone and blinded him. And a voice came from heaven and it said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, I don't even know who you are. And he said, I'm Jesus Christ. At that moment, everything changed in Saul's life. He remained blinded for a short time till a man prayed over him, and he not only received his sight, but he received the Holy Spirit, and he became this on-fire new believer in Jesus Christ. Initially, he had to re-rack his head, so he went away for three years just to try to get a grip on what was going on. Eventually, he tried to join in with the apostles, and they weren't having it. They're like, I know you, dude. He's like, no, I'm changed. They're like, that's what a spy would say, <laughs> Right? So he couldn't get in until a man named Barnabas actually vouched for him and got him into the team. Paul and Barnabas became really close friends. They ended up moving and setting up a home base in a place called Antioch, and it was there that the term Christians was first used. It was all because of that partnership. But what I find interesting about all this is who does he define himself to be? He said what? My name is Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Wait, how did you become an apostle? Now, do you know what apostle means? Apostolos in Greek, it means one sent out by God. If we're going to take that definition, every single one of us are a what? An apostle. But that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about the, the stringent meaning of it. They were saying, no, 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 like Peter, James, and John, like the 12. You weren't one of the 12. How come you get to be an apostle? Because the way that they selected out who the apostles were initially were those that walked with Jesus Christ where he physically came to them, called them into the ministry, and the Holy Spirit attested to them with signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul said, that's me. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, 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 he came to me personally on the road to Damascus. It wasn't through another intermediary. It was just him. And he called me into the ministry, and I've been doing miracles ever since. I'm a legit apostle, but I'm an apostle by the will of God. 
To me, this is fascinating because when he says by the will of God, it means a couple things. Number one, it wasn't his idea. He did not choose this as a career. There are some people that are in the ministry today because they thought it would be a cool thing to do. Then there's people like me who feel like God just tricked me. I have been a pastor of one form or another since I was 21 years old. I never planned before I was 21 to ever be a pastor. I got my degree from Sac State in English literature. What is that? Certainly not to become a pastor. I was moving on to do something else. But sure enough, God tricked me. He brought me into a place and what? Made me fall in love with people. And I could never leave. See, God knew. Paul said, you know what? This wasn't my idea. I never wanted to be this guy. I thought I was going to be Jewish, and I was going to do the Jewish thing, and I was going to be hardcore, and this is what I found out. Jesus is real. It changed my whole life. So here I am called by God, not my idea. So when you hear me, it means that I'm using his authority, not mine. This is not because I'm coming up with good ideas. I'm not here to write a book to say I think I know better than anybody else. I'm getting direct downloads from the Holy Spirit, and I'm telling you what God says. So if you've got a problem with it, don't come after me. You come after him. You take it up with the Lord. Amen. He is our authority. The other thing that's interesting is when he says that I'm an apostle by the will of God, he means make sure that any glory that ever comes goes through me all the way back to him. Don't let it stop with me. i got a funny story for you. So when I was in high school, I, I became friends with a, a young guy named Aaron. And I mean young guy because he was two grades younger than me. I was graduating from Oak Ridge High School in El Dorado Hills, and he was two grades younger, so he was a sophomore. Well, we struck up a friendship because we played music together, and he knew that I was a Christian, and I was all hardcore about it, and so I would talk to him about the Lord, and eventually, um, he gave his life to Christ. But he was super young, super baby Christian. Well, I was now in college. We didn't talk all that much, so he called me up one day, and he's like, hey, Lance, real quick question for you. He's like, dude, I was over at school. There was these two guys. They were talking about my girlfriend. I wanted to kill him. And then I thought to myself, what would Lance do? <laughs> I thought that was so sweet, so cool that he was going, listen, I don't know what the Bible says yet. I don't know what God wants. What I do know is that his representative, this guy named Lance, what would he do in honor of God? And so he wanted to duplicate that. I thought that was really, really sweet. Now, if we had continued to be friends, he was killed by a drunk driver. If we had continued to be friends later on in life and he grew up in the Lord, what would he need to know? You look right through Lance and you go to the source, right? You don't want a WWLD bracelet. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> we want a WWJD. What would Jesus do? Not what would Lance do, right? You always want to make sure that if you're a Christian representative of God, that they're not just impressed by you, they go through you back to the one that is truly impressive. Amen? And then finally, the thing that I'll say about this intro is Paul sure knows who he is. They said, who are you? He's like, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I got no other thing in my life. He's my everything. You want to talk about me? I'm going to tell you about how I was saved. You want to talk about me? I'm going to tell you what my ministry's like. You want to talk about me? I'm going to talk more and more about God. That's all I know, and it's all I care to know. How awesome would it be if every single one of us, if somebody said, oh, I'm sorry, what's your name? And you tell them your name, and they go, oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. And you go, I'm a believer. 
I was saved. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. How awesome if we all had a lock-solid identity to go, you want to talk about God? He's my favorite. I can tell you everything about him. That's why we need to know who he is. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the next part of the verse. He said, to the saints who are in Ephesus, remember I told you that in Ephesus is added in later, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice that he's saying to the saints. What's a saint? Someone who has been called by the Father, who has been purified by the Son, and who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's you. You are a saint. I want you to walk around with your head up high. You are a saint, a called out one in the name of Jesus. Not because you're awesome, because he's awesome, right? We are a saint. He said, I want to call out to the saints and those that are faithful. Faithful to what? To always be connected with God. Now, I know that it added in the in Ephesus part, but I need you to understand Paul's connection to the city of Ephesus in order to understand the letter. So let me tell you a little bit of the history between the two because they were pretty close. One day, Paul was traveling with a power couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. As they traveled through, they entered into the town and city of Ephesus, and they thought, man, there's some opportunities here to do ministry. And Paul said, yeah, but I can't stop here. I got to keep moving on. Hey, how about Priscilla, you and Aquila, how about you guys hang out here? You guys live here and do your ministry. I'll come back and check in with you. They already have churches here, but we need to build them up, right? They said, yeah, we'll do that. As they're going along in their travels, they end up seeing a guy in the town of Ephesus that's this brilliant debater and orator and super amazing preacher, and his name is Apollos. They end up listening to his message, and they're like, dude, that guy can communicate, but his message is kind of weak sauce. So they come up to him afterwards. They're like, dude, loved your message. He's like, thank you. And they said, you know there's more to that story, right? And he's like, no, 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 tell me. They take him under, his wing, under their wing and they disciple him. And he ends up being a powerful, one of the greatest preachers of the ancient world there in Ephesus. Well, sure enough, Paul comes back around, and he decides to settle down and do three years of ministry in Ephesus. And it was a wild ride. How do we know that? Well, he starts out in the Jewish synagogue, Jew talking to Jews, even though he's called to the Gentiles. And after three months, the Jews hate his guts so much they put threats on him, and he's like, fine, I'm out. Ends up speaking to the Greeks for the rest of the time. But here's what's interesting. In that area, the Bible says that he did unusual miracles. Now, if the Bible says they're unusual miracles, they're unusual miracles, yeah? I think all miracles are unusual, right? As a matter of fact, there's a verse in the Bible in Acts that says, and the Holy Spirit regularly did miracles through the hands of the apostles. So that was already a normal thing. But what happened with Paul in Ephesus was abnormal. Something was totally different. What was that? You guys remember this story? People took his work aprons and his work handkerchief that he wiped his sweat and snot on and took them to sick people and laid it on them, and they were healed. They took his aprons and laid them on demon-possessed people, and demons were cast out by his laundry. Dude, you are hardcore, right? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is rolling through your clothing, you have a pretty powerful ministry in that area, right? Well, everyone starts taking notice. They're like, dang, this guy, something's weird about this guy. Why did God do that in that region? I'm going to suggest to you 
because of the spirit of the area. They were really into mysticism and sorcery and witchcraft and all this stuff. As a matter of fact, some Jewish guys were exorcists. That was their business, right? Little cards, Jew exorcist, right? Kind of odd. And this was their tagline. They would cast out demons, quote, I cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ whom Paul preaches. Wait, what? That's lame. One time they come to a big dog demon that's super sticky and he's like, uh, heck no. And here's his response. Oh, I know Jesus. Oh, I've heard of Paul. I'm sorry, who are you? And it says, and the demon manifests and all those exorcists left naked and bleeding. He beat them all up. Okay, do not play around with that garbage if you do not have the Holy Spirit, right? So everyone in the city was like, uh, I'm a little nervous. Are you a little nervous? I'm nervous, right? Because weird stuff was happening. Well, then Paul starts preaching and going, man, you got to drop this Artemis garbage, those stupid little idols. Those are useless. And you know what? All this sorcery stuff that you're doing, we need to get our eyes on God. This is all garbage. And they're like, yeah, let's have a revival. And they start throwing their magic books into the fire and they're having this big, huge party and they're celebrating God and going, I don't need that stuff anymore. And everything seems to be cool until he ticked off the economy. You see, people are really, really easy going until you mess with their money. The minute you mess with their money, they're going to get mad. So sure enough, a guy named Demetrius, who ran one of the biggest businesses making those dumb little idols, was not cool with it. Paul just shut down his whole business. So he leads a riot, wants to tear Paul apart, grabs two of his friends. They rush into that theater I showed you a picture of, and for two hours have a riot. It only calms down when the town clerk comes in and says, guys, shut it down now. Rome doesn't like riots. And if you guys keep making a noise, they're going to come shut us down. I don't need to hear about it. Go home. It's the only reason they survived. After that, Paul had so many death threats, he never went back to Ephesus again. He would still communicate with their elders, but he didn't spend time in their city that we know of. Here's what he said. He said, grace to you and peace from God. Grace is important, is it not? Why? The word grace is used 13 times in the book of Ephesians, and that's not an accident. Grace means that things are okay because God made them okay. Do you have that in your heart? Or are you still nervous about your relationship with God? You see, I put my head on the pillow at night. Now, you got to understand, I'm, I'm like one of those jittery little squirrels, man. I, with panic disorder and everything, I'm all squirrely, right? But I can lay my head on the pillow at night and sleep because I know that things are right between me and God. How do I know that? Because he loved me when I was unlovable. He loved me when I didn't even know him. He's the one that adopted me and brought me into the family. It wasn't my idea in the first place, so I don't have to maintain it. I also know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and canceled the code that stands against me. So even if I sin, even if I'm a rebel, even if I'm a punk, I'm still his child. And he's still going to love me and he's still going to carry me through and he's going to discipline me back into shape. But he does not abandon me. Amen? Amen. You guys, part of the confidence that I walk with is knowing what grace means. 
And when I have grace in my head, I can have the peace in my heart. Amen? Let's finish this out because he says something interesting on the end. He says this. He said, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? All right, let me say it again. To God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, granted, in the first two verses, he said Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus three times. You think that's an accident? No. What is he saying? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you a quick question. If the Father is the Father, that implies authority. Yes? The Father gets to tell you what to do. All right, cool. What does Lord mean? It means master. What does master imply? Authority. So hold up. Is the Father in charge or is Jesus in charge? If you said the answer is what? Yes. <laughs> then you believe in a doctrine called the Trinity. Now this is where those of you that are not Bible nerds check out. Because you go, oh, man, come on, dude, really? We're going to get into the Trinity thing? Whatever. I'm into Jesus. I get it. Three God. No, three people, one God. I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, so here's the thing. I'm just into Jesus, and I'm good. Hold on. It is not merely academic. It is critical that we understand the Trinity. Why? Let me give you five reasons real fast as we close. Here we go. Number one, it explains how there is one God, three distinct persons. Why is that important? Because it's the truth. See, understand this. Three times a day, Jews were told by God to say the Shema. What's the Shema? It's a prayer out of the Old Testament, and it says this. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. Whatever you make in your life out of Christianity, you better not be a polytheist. You don't believe in many gods. There are not many gods. There are not many different opinions in heaven. There are not people conflicting in heaven. In Hinduism, there are many gods. In Christianity, there are not many gods. It is monotheism, one God. But here's the problem. You remember the baptism of Jesus? Let's talk about that for a second. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was in the water. Then a voice came from heaven from the Father saying, you are my son. So we know it was the Father that was in heaven, and yet the Holy Spirit was what? Coming down like a dove. Three distinct, not even in the same location at the same time. Three distinct. Is Jesus God? He has to be. Is the Holy Spirit God? He has to be. Is the Father God? He has to be, but there's one. How are you going to explain that? unless you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Number two, it demonstrates how Jesus is fully man and fully God because if he isn't, the cross doesn't mean what we think it means. He had to be fully man so he could be our representative and he needed to be fully God so he could die for the sins of the world. You can't take any part away. So either Jesus is God or we're all going to hell. Make sense? Number three, it engages us with the Holy Spirit as a person and not a force as a person and not a force. Why? Because some of us, we like people with skin on them. We like the idea that we could draw our God. We love the idea that the Father has a big beard, right? We love the idea that Jesus has a little beard. But we're not sure if the Holy Spirit has a beard, and that makes us uncomfortable because beards are safe, right? So we tend to go, well, we'll talk a lot and we'll, we'll pray to the Father and we'll pray to the Son, but we're, that other guy, whatever. But do you understand that the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as He? You never refer to a force as He. What are you going to do with that? Number four, we can have a more accurate relationship with God. 
If you know the Trinity and understand it, you're going to know more who you say you love the most. Listen, let's say that you and I went out on a date. Two things would happen right off the bat. One is that my wife would be mad. (laughs) Second of all, you're uncomfortable, whatever. Anyway, go with the analogy. Let's say you and I go out on a date. What we would do is the first thing that we would do is we would talk, and I'd want to know more about you. Why? I bond through information. I want to know more about you, what makes you tick, where your background is, what's going on. That's how I connect to people. Once again, it's important to know the God that you serve. Number five, it explains how God is both self-contained and yet relational in nature. In other words, we say God is one, and yet we say everything down here is an example of his nature. For example, gender is the nature of God expressed. Male, female, it's a God thing. Marriage, it's a God display. It demonstrates the Trinity. But we say things like we need to be in community, we need to have each other, we can't be alone, and yet we say there's one God. How do we know he's not alone? Because the Trinity, the Father communicates to the Son who communicates with the Holy Spirit who communicates with the Father. In other words, even within himself is community, and that's why it has to be part of who we are. You see, this is not academic. It's relational. You see, there's a certain distance in a relationship when you don't really know each other. If you and I were friends for 30 years and you still call me Frank, (laughs) we have a problem. It gets tiring to go, dude, my name's not Frank, it's Lance, (laughs) right? Now, will I have a lot of grace for that because we're friends? Yeah, but at some point, we're not really as close as we think we are, right? Same thing happens, who do you pray to? It's interesting, have you ever done this? I've done this, publicly. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for dying for our sins. Don't you think at some point, God's gonna go, hold up, I didn't die for your sins, that was a son. You're like, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, (laughs) right? But don't you think it'd be accurate and more accurate to be able to say thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the protector and the guide and the one that indwells us right here, right now. Thank you, Father, for initiating. You see, when we do that, it makes it feel more connective and more personal. Now, can God sort the mail? Yes! Don't be paranoid, man. Like, I don't know who I'm praying to. Oh, and you lock up, right? It's kind of like, listen, all their emails route to the same address, right? You're all cool, right? Don't even worry about it. If you're like, oh my gosh, uh, no, 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 relax. What I'm telling you is if you've been with the Lord for a really, really long time and you keep addressing the persons of God differently and wrong, it just shows that we don't quite know what we're talking about. It's not academic. It's relational. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Let's close this thing out. Y'all, there's a confidence to live when we know who God is and who we are. I pray that every single one of us would have the confidence to walk with our head held high, never afraid that someone's gonna ask us a question about our God, never afraid they're gonna ask us about our story because who knows it better than us. We should live boldly, confidently, humbly, The prayer team is up here for your needs before you head out, so make sure to take use of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you and we praise you. You are mighty and wonderful and awesome. Lord, we don't understand everything about you. What we do know, we love. Father, thank you for your initiation of love. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice to make us connected.
And Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us right here, right now. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.